I would use the words of Peter to bring you greetings from my friends, colleagues, and family. Peter, finishing his first epistle, said these words, she who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. I found that very informative or instructive. Peter bringing greetings to Christians all across the world who at this point were facing deep persecution and challenge reminded them that it wasn't unique to them, the challenge and the persecutions they were facing. And he said those who were with him, and at this time he was writing from Rome, was sending them greetings. The word Babylon has always been used to signify where the people of God had faced tremendous suffering and oppression, a place they ought not to be. In all my 25 years of service, we've never had it so difficult in Garissa and the northeastern part of this country like we've had in the last one year. It all began with the Al-Shabaab people attacking Christians who were worshipping in an AIC church, quite our neighborhood. And there they killed 13. From that day on, security situations escalated and things got from bad to worse. It didn't spare the security personnel, it didn't spare anyone. Almost a half of the town left. Churches were increasingly attacked in the nose of very great security organs in the country, for we had no one to appeal to. The government and anyone else felt incapable of coming to our aid. We resorted to prayer and turning to God to shield us. I want to thank him that he has spared us. It was very risky that one would feel it's easier to move and leave. Maybe that was when God was telling us, you've done your ministry, so you quit. But every time I picked my bag planning to leave, he reminded me that you are my community in this dangerous and difficult place. My brothers and sisters whom I left behind would be happy to know that you remember them in your daily prayers Though the wind has blown and things have calmed down now, we are always living on the edge, praising God and thanking him that our lives have been spared and we've gotten greater and greater opportunity to share his word. I therefore bring you greetings from those chosen like you who are living under that oppression. I echo the greetings of our brothers from Egypt and elsewhere who are equally going through this difficult oppression and remember, they are chosen with you. Praise be to God. It's not their burden alone. In this way, we have been united in the suffering of the whole church of Christ. We have been called into this life where we've shared with those who have been oppressed, those who have suffered, and those who have borne the brunt of the work of God. For many years, I had believed that God had chosen people, few of us, who had got and had been called and had 
power to turn their backs on things and they were pioneers and they were multi-gifted. They would speak and learn languages and do many things and there would be heroes come back testifying and give people pictures of what God is doing. These were God's chosen ones. But I'm coming to realize years on that even the weak, even the unrecognizable people like my brother shared yesterday, are equally chosen together with us. We are bound in our choosing, how God chose us. He bound us together in him. So if one part of the body suffers, the rest suffers with it. Suffering and challenging places had been up to now defined in terms of geographical difficulties, inaccessibility in land and even information not known about people and things in those places. But I'm seeing a broader definition of those difficult places, where the soul is isolated, where souls are oppressed. We would summarize all these to be difficult places. But you wouldn't see that until you have seen that in the context of the worship and love of God where his presence is. Apostle Peter reminds us that God has chosen us like them and he has given us to be his people and we are sending greetings. Will you receive greetings from my people? Praise be to God. And that greetings is another way of asking you, remember us in prayer. Hallelujah. When you pray your prayer of blessings of your food, please pray for us. When you pray, when you're about to sleep, please remember us in prayer. In that way, we will appreciate our being chosen together with those brothers and sisters whom God has used and given the opportunity to endure hardships for him. My journey did not start very easy. I was wondering what made me be in this place because when things became difficult I was planning to see shall I relocate I got actually two offers a friend in Congo invited me and said Francis come over you will stay with us and I was saying leaving Garissa for Congo would be like leaving the, uh, fan, uh, the saucepan into fire because even eastern Congo was not that peaceful Another friend in America called and said, please, if you really need to get out, come. We would host you. But in all this, I began to go through my journey of life. How did I end up here? My journey in missions started with an urge, and an urge of wanting to suffer something for God. I had a matter syndrome. I also wanted to die for God, like others have died. That's why in 1987, I'd organized a mission trip to a town in, this, in the northern part of this country. And as we preached, invited people to Christ, they took stones and really started plating stones on us, throwing sands on us, and telling us that we they were killers. I stared at death with my eyes. But in me, I was rejoicing that at least I was suffering for Christ. I wanted more of it. But God spared me. 
So I lived and I organized another trip. We were equally stoned. And it was during this that I began asking, why would people reject God so violently, a God who had been so good? I did not deserve to be saved. I did not deserve the privileges that I eventually acquired in life. Because in 1977, Jesus saved me, a rogue young man in a group who had gone out stealing, who had come into a place where people were worshipping to upset them. I had left school and become a group, a part of a street kids in this city. And Jesus saved me, giving me new life. I came back to my parents. They couldn't believe that I would be saved. So I was evacuated to live with my grandmother up country. But it proved true. Years later, I found myself in the university on top of things in this country. Those years, we were very few of us. The government seemed to have known everyone who was in the university. Now, with a parallel system, you don't know who is in the university and who is not. Even your lecturers don't know you. Those days, they would know us, and even they paid us for being in the university. Very interestingly, sitting and enjoying my life there, God struck me with a question. What would you do to show gratitude for what I have done for you? I ignored that question and went over with the things. So I then began to develop the thought, I want to do something to thank God for what he had done for me. And in this, I came to realize it wasn't the thing I was going to do, but the life I would live should be a life of gratitude. It was this that made me want to ask, where is it that Christ has not been known? that I would go and make him known in the way to make them believe in Christ in the way that I turned and believed in him. This is why I was puzzled that I would bring good news of a saving Christ to a people and they would reject it with, by stoning us in the way they did. Friends, out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving, I turned my back to a profession that I was now being invited to teach in the university and on that gave me a chance to go out in missions. But that was not the end of my frustrations because every mission I went to were all foreigners, foreign missions, and they said we do not have sending base in Africa. I sat and thought, if an African today wanted to be a missionary, who would send him? There was no organization that was there ready to receive, prepare, and even send people. My only choice was now to be a pastor. And to be a pastor, I would have been given a, par a parish in my Anglican tradition. Or I would have been made a pastor of a church in here in the city. But there were need of people out in the periphery to be told about Christ who had never heard for the first time the story of Christ. This is what then led me, to, among others, to begin the mission, Sheepfold Ministries that was aiming at beginning to plant churches among the unreached people groups coming out of 1988. Through this life, I have come then to realize that it's not those specially trained missionaries who God is calling only, 
that God is calling people who have known him, who have interacted with him, that he would use them in the art of worshipping him. Paul, writing to the Corinthians in chapter 9, after he made a long appeal to ask them to give resources that they would support another suffering Christians, Christians who are suffering doubly, one from famine in Jerusalem, and Christians who are also suffering persecution that had broken out in Jerusalem, he encouraged the Christians in Macedonia and the rest of the Asian world to provide resources to support them so that they would live comfortably and rejoice in God. And in the concluding part of that, he said that the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing in many thanks, giving to God. It urged me to think about that very strongly. As Christians, we are called that our ministry of thanksgiving would, would mean that we supply the needs of others. And in supplying this need, they would overflow in thanksgiving to God. Communities that had no health centers, receiving health centers and receiving those blessings that we are redistributing and reorganizing in the country would make people filled with joy and praise to God. That is why in that hymn they said, blessings abound wherever he reigns. That the blessing coming with those who have loved and served him. Paul intriguingly used that word service in this portion could have been translated as liturgia, liturgia, from which we, I know there are many Pentecostals here, but those who come from our traditional churches, you will understand when I talk of liturgy. That is where we draw the word liturgy. In this passage, it has two connotations. The first one, which is more from the Greek translation, liturgia would be seen as a social action an action of promoting needs and community coming together and meeting a need that is there and coming to serve in that context, providing resources and transforming the society in that way, which is very important. There is another way one could look at this, and this is from the Hebrew interpretation of that same word, lutagia. And this has an implication of what happens in the temple, which is worship. In the Hebrew version, it implies the service that we give to God. And through this service that we give to God, it translates in the service that we now come out and render in the community. It's easy to divide this and take the social action beat than the worship beat. Or it's easy to take the worship beat of it and leave the social action part of it. But I wanted us to weave these two together, that our worship ought to translate in social action. If our worship things that we do in this temple are not translated in visible, tangible changes which display the glory and the honor of our God out there in the society, then our worship has only ended. It's more a cult that we are practicing in here, but it cannot be visible outside. Our God ought to be the God in the temple, displayed and seen in our action in the society. 
I wanted to delve deep into that understanding, which is why I chose to look at the account of the people of God and look at it from that Hebrewic version so that we could develop a thought for this evening. Liturgy would be seen as the worship service that we give to God. God is interested in us worshiping him. John Piper is known to have been telling us that the goal of mission is worship. Mission must translate in people lifting their hands to God and worshiping him. Mission sh should not only translate in people getting healed and moving on, people getting resources and filling their stomachs, people getting things, education, and enlightening their, their world without that being translated into worship. Neither can we cajole people to worship before they have been willing to turn and know God in that manner. The account of the event of Israelite people flight from Egypt demonstrate what this is. There appears to be two goals, two distinct goals in the act of the Exodus. The first goal that is obvious to many of us is that Exodus was occurring to allow the people in bondage, people of God in bondage, to reach the promised land. We, however, see the other goal of it that is repeated again and again. God's original goal and the command that he gave to Moses to go and give to Pharaoh was this. Let my people go and serve me. Exodus chapter 7 verse 16. It then gives me that express feeling that the purpose for which God wanted to bring the people in bondage in Israel, in Egypt, to the promised land was that they would go out and serve him. Four times this reason is cited for Exodus uh, with slight variation, but every time when Pharaoh, meets, with, when Pharaoh meets Aaron and Moses, he's always reminded of that. In Exodus chapter 8 verse 1, in Exodus chapter 9 verse 1, 9, 13, and even 10, 3, in all this point, he is urging him, let my people go and serve me. The same word translated as Lotagia. In the course of this negotiation with Pharaoh, the goal becomes intense, that one of serving God. Pharaoh shows he is ready to compromise. And that's why in the first instance in chapter 8, verse 25, he says he allows them, he discerns that the burden that these people have is freedom of worship. And so he says, go, sacrifice to your God, but do it within the land. Just go to the corner somewhere there and do sacrifice to God. But Moses insists in obedience to God. He obeys God's command. And he says, worship must be done in a proper way, the way God wanted. And he says, God wanted me to us to worship in the wilderness. And that journey will take us three days. Pharaoh, after the plagues and a little pressure from God and divine action, he concedes and says, okay, worship. But he then defines for them how they ought to worship. He says, let only men go and worship. 
Leave your women and children and all the other things here. But men can go and worship in the wilderness for three days. But Moses cannot negotiate the worship with a foreign, of God with a foreign king. He will not subject worship to a form of political correctness or compromise. The manner in which God is to be worshipped is not question of a political visibility. It contains a measure within itself. It can only be ordered by the measure of revelation in dependency upon God. That is why in this third instance, when he insisted and agree and Pharaoh comes and says, let women, children, and men go and worship, but your flock and your herd should remain. Moses still objects and says, we do not know what God will ask of us when we go. I see the intention of God to not only include us experts, as powerful people in serving him, as called people, but he embraces all his people with all that they have. There is nothing that God leaves out in his invitation to us to come and worship him. Our money, our heritage, our being, our blackness, our tallness, our shortness, our roundness, our long longness, all this are some total that God wants to us to bring and contribute in the worship. I do want to pick on what was even said yesterday. No one has nothing that God wants in his worship. And so he says, you, we must worship him because we do not know what God may want when we meet him and he instructs us to worship. All these issues were not pertaining to promised land. In all these negotiations, it was, be freed that you may come and worship me. Hallelujah. Friend, our strategies aside, our zeal aside, our achievement aside, if all we do do not reflect on worshiping God, we would have run our race in vain. In all this issue, it's not the promised land. The goal appears to be worship, worship taking place in the way God wants it done. Israel then departs to serve God. They are not to be a people like any other. God has called them to be a unique people. And therefore, God comes out to meet them. It wasn't just a technical maneuver to get them out of Egypt, but this appears to be the deep intention God had to bring them out. The land was to be given them so that it would be a place of worship. I now wonder where, why the hard places exist. I have a notion that the hard places exist so that God can be worshipped in them. Hallelujah. The hard places exist so that God who has freed us from bondage would command us to be present and allow us to experience him so that he may be worshipped there. To be God's elect is a huge responsibility and Israel comes to know this. 
They want not to be like any other political nation. They were called to be a missionary people. And this they will discover once they meet God on Sinai. It is in the wandering in the desert that eventually brings them to the rendezvous where they were to meet God. And this happened in Exodus chapter 19 when they stand on the foot of Mount Sinai. And in that place, God appears to his people. God who had warned them, come with everything and leave nothing behind, for you do not know what I may ask of you, now meets with them. And when he meets with them, he does three things. First, he speaks to his people. He comes down to them. He makes himself known in the thunder, earthquake, the grumbling. And they begin to know this God is not a joke. They fear him. I wished they said, God, speak to us directly. Like someone in our discussion yesterday said, if they had allowed God to speak to them without the mediation of Moses, they would, we would have, the, this whole situation would have been different. But they chose to ask Moses, you speak to God, whatever he tells you, come over and tell us, and we will do as God wants. They allowed mediation. But God spoke to his people, and he made his will known to them, summarized in the Ten Commandments. He gave them the law. And through Moses' mediation, God makes a covenant with them. And this covenant was characterized by minute, minute orders of worship, what they ought to do in worshiping him. The animals became handy. They were to sacrifice some in the morning. They were to do everything. Even the jewels they heard had meaning in this worship. Nothing was left out of this. Here Israel begin to see the purpose which was explained to Pharaoh that is being fulfilled, that when they met God, they will know what God asks of them. Liturgy in a proper sense, or worship in a proper sense, a liturgy in a proper sense shows us how to worship God. And this is seen in us doing the will of God in the commandment and being brought in as a people. This Sinai was not a middle place between the desert and uh, it was not just a middle place between exile or bondage and the promised land. It was the place where God would form them as a people because without that experience at Sinai, there was no reason for them to go to the promised land. The reason why they had to come to this place of God's revelation, it was that they would now draw the likeness of God in them. The laws displayed the likeness of God. The law displayed who God was. The part of worship that was indispensable constituted the idea that God revealed himself. God made himself known to them. God made them know his will, and this is where he wanted them to follow meticulously what, they want, what he wanted of them. As the scripture said, the glory of God was down upon them. It is this presence of God that made that mysterious. True worship is where God comes down to his people. We are oblivious of what God will do or what God will ask of us, but in our showing up, God shows up and 
it begins taking us from one step to another. I must tell you this. When I left for missions, I was warmly challenged that the world is dying. Souls are about to go to hell. Every minute a soul is dying. If we don't go, many of them will die, which is true. My friend, I went, and the souls that were supposed to be dying were not interested in this gospel. No, they resisted it, and they even told me I'm the one who will go to hell. I must reveal to you that for once I considered converting to Islam, having had that zeal to go and serve them. Their structures were very convincing. It took God again to come back to me in that kind of wilderness of hardship to let me see that he is the one who's called me to worship him and to serve him in this context. Life becomes real when our worship looks up to God, towards God and we draw from God the vision and we draw from God the extract instructions of how we ought to live and serve him. In Sinai, the people of God received his instructions about worship, the rule of life. They also were brought into a covenant that was weaved, that weaved both worship, law, and ethics together, making them a people, which was its uniqueness. But it became a problem later when the Gentiles were now being brought into the church as a covenant people, that something had to be done to, um, to free the Gentiles to be part of this. What takes place in the land takes place because people had learned at Sinai to worship. This is why every time people broke the law, forgot the covenant, and never lived ethically, they were being sent to exile. They, God felt they never deserved to occupy the land he had given them. As was said yesterday, our winning souls, our salvation was received freely, or was given us freely. This doesn't have a bearing of what will happen to us in future, but we must occupy this place, this land, worshiping the Lord properly and obeying his law. In other words, living that life he has called us to live. The interesting bit with worship is this, that we cannot make this worship ourselves. We ought not to make worship ourselves. We have to come to that mysterious context and stand before God and allow him to help us through. I had my own ideas of what it would mean to serve God. I came out with crusades and actually had a strategy. Three months in this village, three months in the next village, after three months then another village, until the whole region from this horn to Mozambique is all evangelized. But the Lord had a different thing when I reached my Sinai, which was Garissa. He said, no, train more people. And it's out of this that over 200 people have walked through our hands 
Some have left, some are still serving in different capacities, and this has been the great branching out of how he's reaching people. I do not have an idea how many people God has used us to challenge, not only trained in Garissa, or those who have been inspired by our example, continue in this service. When we make our own worship, it becomes false worship. And from this, God should free us. Liturgy, on the other hand, matters to us that we must not do it ourselves. We must come to that point where God reveals himself to us. Nowhere is this more dramatically evident than in that narrative of the golden calf. In that same Mount Sinai, there was a time when Moses went up the hill and the people approached the high priest Aaron and told them, please, God has, God has stopped talking. Moses, the man of God, is not here. Make us a God. And out of their own things, they sacrificed those things, and Aaron quickly formed a God. They were not meant in this golden calf to serve a heathen or a foreign God. No. It was a form of subtle apostasy. It was not obviously turning away from God to false gods. Outwardly, people remained committed to the covenant and to the same God. They wanted to glorify God who led them out of Egypt and they believed that they were properly doing it and they properly presented those mystery things in the form of the calf. Everything seemed to be in order. Presumably, even the rituals and the rubrics were correct. They got the right colors. Yet, they were falling away from worshiping God to idolatry. There is a great, great idolatry reaping the church of God. We have worshipped other things other than that God who revealed himself, who demands of us worship. Instead, we have fallen into apostasy that outwardly looks like God, and, but inwardly it is not God's purpose that we are serving. I'm afraid to say it's even with missionaries. Earlier it had been a national agenda. It could be political correctness. It could be a tribal agenda. In fact, in our mission, having suffered in the hands of the foreign missions that never wanted any of us Africans, I started this mission and said it will be an indigenous mission, nothing to do with the West, nothing to do with this. They will also know that Africans can do missions. God held me on the track and asked me one day in my devotion, is this a national movement or a kingdom movement? That day, I opened the door of our mission in 1993. We admitted the first Canadian lady who served with us on our terms and lived with us in Garissa for more than seven years, worked with us in developing the training. We opened our door to a Korean couple. We opened door to a Nigerian. It was no longer Africa. In fact, I was so difficult that I didn't even want money. Twice, I got foreign money from America and I called it foreign. I refused to take it. And it took persuasion that this is it and I had to reorganize my theology 
to say that if it is money given in the kingdom and it belongs to Christians, then that one I can take. I will not apply to USAID, but I will be happy to take it from Christians. And that's why I've thought we've never been dependent. Hallelujah. It's never been dependent if it is coming from the body into the body. Hallelujah. But it would be dependency if it is coming from foreign sources who are not part of the kingdom. America is as much the body of Christ as Africa is. I'm taking you back to what we have learned. Don't you sit there, say you are American or Korean or Asian or whatever. We are that body of worshippers. And we worship him with everything that he has given us. Hallelujah. We don't know what he will require of us when we show up. This subtle worship was, is not easily perceptible. Though it violates, one, the prohibition of images, the problem we have is that people, then and even now, cannot cope with invisible things. This idea of invisible God, remote God, that you must really sit and listen for him to talk to you, is not my cup of tea. They want things that work. They want to bring God down into their own world, into what they can see and understand. Worship no longer is no longer going up to God. Worship is no longer vulnerably waiting on him but drawing God down to one's own world. And one must feel that this God is needed here so that he can act. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to discern the deceit in our world that is beguiling even the church of Christ, that we no longer see God the invisible God, and allow him to appear to us. But we create something that we can see, we can relate with, it relates with our culture, it relates with our psyche, and that is what is pleasing God. We can't create things that please God. We must read his word to discern that clearly. Moses went for too long, and so God became inaccessible, and the people had just to fetch him back. And in that form, they fetched him back in the form of a calf. Then they worshipped him and began feast and celebration. The songs they were singing were the same songs of Zion. They were the same songs of deliverance, singing that you are the one who delivered us from Israel. We've got to be wary of making even fellow human beings to be this God for us. It is so easy to slip into that. We must be weary of making our cultures this God for us that we just fetch and bring and worship in that form. Instead of being, of being the worship of God, we center this in ourselves. It's about eating, drinking, and making merry. My friends, the kingdom of God is not about food and drink. Hallelujah. How would our righteousness be seen if we have not made those drastic moves? How would we value and make people value God if we would not yield even one moment for him? I always, someone once told me, which I thought was a big compliment, that this your God, you really carry him so high. 
you even left your career so that you would be you would make him happy and he must be happy when you are suffering that's i mean the pastor was abusing me like that but i sat and looked and i said if i have made you think that i value god more than anything i am then on the right track what would people who look at you think you value more your practice your family remember what is said if anyone must come after me he must hate himself take up his cross daily and follow me i said if anyone does not hate his father his mother his brothers his sisters his children yeah it's easy to do that and he says even himself he cannot be my disciple we are called to worship him truly and to give ourselves in that way anything less would be drifting towards apostasy god has called us to make him matter to worship him where worship is at present to sing in the night songs of glory and honor to sing how great thou art in the dark clouds of djibouti to sing god you are great in somalia to sing how mighty thou art o god in egypt in cairo and all across these places what will we do i think we africans god has placed us in the proximity of all these unreached peoples that through these we may also make this god our god if he is our god and we will not go to herald and talk about him to those who have not known then he remains a foreign god that we only sing about we must pay the cost of serving him when we realize that everywhere he is present won't be difficult places we would change the topic of what i i was given serving god in difficult places to turn it to worshiping god in all places those difficult places could be even in parliament here in nairobi it could be in kenyatta hospital it could be in mukuru kwajenga it could be anywhere but where we have made our god matter above all i close with this when our organization started we made three principles that have guided us all along shipful started as a weak thing and it remained weak many of you have never heard of it although we've been there for 25 years this december we will be celebrating our 25th anniversary even where we serve people don't know it when they ask where is shipful they will never get a sign you will never know what what it is people come and go but it all came from that one principle first of all the lord called us to incarnation as he said in his word in john 20 as my father sent me so send i you this was what god said the word became flesh and dwelt among us we have been sent to those difficult places that we would take flesh we would come be incarnate we would represent christ and disappear in them this had a connotation that this is not something we do for years and leave 
But God is sending us out, like Bonhoeffer said, as cutted seed, that waiting for the day of harvest to bring them back. Last year, we were digging, we got land from Somali, and we had agreed with my wife to make our home in Garissa. I have no other home anywhere, also my parents' home. And in deciding to make my home in Garissa, I had a lot of answers to give to my servants and others. I said, you can be whoever you want, but I think for me, I'm being planted here that the Lord would bring me back. It's that consistency, that agreeing to die and disappear, that agreeing to cut off any other ambitions or desires that you'd have, that opportunity you're choosing to remain. This is where I want to express my worship and my service to God. I may look a foreigner, and that's why we are exiles, but it's such a message that the only place I wound will only be in that land. Incarnation is calling us to die. Our second principle that was very strong was the cross. The cross was not only the message that we wanted to preach and bring to Muslims, but the cross was also to be our pattern of life. And all of my friends who've been with us You've always known our famous verse, our famous motto has been, I, ah, where are you? I, I die daily, amen. <laughs> the cross that we've been called to embrace leaves no life in us. So that the life we live will no longer be ours, but the life that God lives through us. That is the true worship. God gave us this not only to be the message that we proclaim, the message that organizes what we say and who we are, but also to be our pattern of life. And finally, God led us to take methods of weakness, vulnerability, that we come to the world not impressive, not to impress them by power or greatness, but in that weakness, allow God to plant that seed in their hearts to convince them of what it is and allow their eyes to open to the glory of God that will bring them to love him and to embrace him. Friends, fear would keep us away from choosing to live for God, to live in this style of fragrant worship of him, to live in this life where we would serve him anywhere. But I want to encourage you by the power of Christ and faith in him that you would live to the glory and honor of God all the days of your life. I will not ask you to come to Garissa, but I will ask you to find Mount Sinai. Hallelujah. Come make your journey to where God wants you to be. It is there that he will reveal to you what he's asking of you. For some, that this conference has been your Sinai. Hallelujah. For some people, this would be that point where you are turning and say, Jesus, 
I see it differently. Use even wildlife. For some of us, it will take a field trip, coming to a place and allowing God to speak to you. It took me going to Ajia Garissa to begin to see God clearly. The ultimate goal is not how many souls are won. It's not that that he will ask of me. That is, he will ask of me how I have worshipped him, how my life has translated in that. I want you friends to think about this. I want the Lord to make you move with him. Are we ready to tell him, Jesus, help me to worship you above all others. Hallelujah. The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.